Hello and welcome on to another episode of the ISO Ball Podcast with your host, Derek Terrio, your place to learn about the NBA on and off the court. So today we're going to go over the semifinal series in the East and the West. Uh, some of these series have close to concluded or in some case have concluded. So we're just going to go, kind of go over what I've seen through the four series uh, in the semifinals, those being the Raptors Celtics, the Bucks Heat, which has now concluded, Clippers Nuggets, and Rockets Lakers. Um, so we won't waste any time here. Uh, there, actually, there has been some coaching news. Let's start with the major piece of news here. Uh, since I didn't get to it, and most of you have, uh, most of you have already heard this by now, but Steve Nash uh, being hired on to coach the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, this is uh, an interesting move. Uh, obviously, a lot of people uh, weren't expecting Steve Nash to uh, be available as a coach, uh, put his hat in the ring, so to speak, and uh, it seems like he has. So the Brooklyn Nets are getting Steve Nash as their coach. As you know, Nash previously as a consultant uh, on the GM side with the Warriors along with player development, uh, has a close relationship with Kevin Durant, has worked with Kyrie in the past, so you can be sure that both of those guys went to bat to have Steve Nash as their coach, and I believe he uh, has worked with Sean Marks in the past as well. So I mean, this is all speculation at this point. We've seen in the past that, uh, you know, point guards, high IQ point guards haven't necessarily been the best coaches. I'm looking at, you know, guys like Jason Kidd uh, and Derek Fisher as examples of that. Um, so, you know, it has not necessarily been a good track record for high IQ point guards like that of Nash. But uh, a lot of people, what they say, Raja Bell being one of them, just really tout his ability to communicate what he sees on the floor to his players in a way that they understand it. So, uh, obviously Nash Canadian kid, uh, Canadian man at this point, I should say, uh, a guy that I'm obviously rooting for to see succeed in Brooklyn and we'll just have to see how it goes. I don't really have too many, uh, things to say outside of, uh, we'll see how it goes. He's got a very talented roster. Uh, he's got a lot of pressure to succeed with that talented roster. And, uh, for his sake, I hope he does uh, succeed in being a good coach for the Brooklyn Nets. Okay, let's get into the series here. Let's start with the already concluded Bucks versus Heat, which has ended in an upset. The Mil- I picked the Milwaukee Bucks to win in six games, and the Miami Heat defeated the Milwaukee Bucks in five. And, I mean, let's talk about what went wrong here for the Milwaukee Bucks. I mean, this was a team... Number one offense, number one defense came in as one of the championship contenders and one of the teams that we thought was going to win a title. And uh, again, we've talked about this before, but the Bucks are basically playing the same style of defense that they've set up all year. Um, so they, you, we know what they do, right? They prioritize giving up a lot of three-pointers in uh, in exchange for not having anything in the paint and at the rim. They're going to give you mid-rangers. They're going to play drop coverage and have their guards, uh, high defensive guards, Eric Bledsoe and George Hill, fight over the top and force you uh, to shoot over the top of guys like Brooke Lopez when coming down the paint for a mid-ranger. We know what they're vulnerable to, which is you know three-point shooting, uh, two guys above the break, and Miami has a lot of those shooters. Um, and But the thing is, is on offense – you know, the Bucks are basically playing against a, basically a light version of their defense. Like Miami does a lot of the same things that the Bucks do in, in terms of Miami's defense. They want to take away the paint. They want to allow you to shoot threes uh, over, getting, uh, over getting to the rim. And they basically play the same style of defense as, as the Bucks, just a little less extreme. 
But what they did in addition to that, talking about Miami now, what Miami did in addition to that is basically do what ter- the Toronto Raptors did in the conference finals last year against Giannis, which is build the wall in transition and see what Giannis can do to get past that. Now, that forces Giannis to do a couple of things. I mean, for one, it forces him to either shoot from the outside, uh, whether it be from you know deep mid-range or mid-range or three. Any of those shots are a win for the defense as long as he's not uh, penetrating, getting to the paint, and finishing at the rim. Any shot from Giannis is a is a proverbial win for the defense, regardless of the result. So they're forcing him to do that, and it also forces these kickout passes to shooters on the wing, and you know forces them to attack or shoot the three. But the problem is, is that when you build this wall against Giannis, these defenders for Miami uh, are still like close enough and are good enough defenders in some cases of guys like you know Iguodala and Jay Crowder. You know they're they're good enough to be able to close out when Giannis passes out to these shooters. Um, and that's a, that's kind of a problem uh, because now like you're you're trusting you're trusting that if three guys are gonna kind of wall up to Giannis that somebody's gonna be open but it's not necessarily the case that 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 those, that those Milwaukee shooters are open and in some cases the Milwaukee shooters aren't necessarily making those shots uh, and that's that's a bit of a problem uh, in general points for the points in the paint for the Bucks are not as high at, at as they have been throughout the series. Uh, in this series, they did not score as many points in the paint credit to Miami's defense. And, uh, you know, obviously one of the big stories as well in this series for the Bucks, you know, before Giannis turns his ankle, uh, is the minutes of Giannis and Middleton. Uh, you know, Mike Boonholzer really did not want to exceed 36, 37 minutes for Giannis. Uh, and that basically, what that does is, you know, not only is you don't have your best player, best help defender, best offensive player on the floors, best offensive players on the floor in terms of Giannis and Middleton, but that opens up these seven or eight minute stretches of, you know, kind of weird lineups. And, you know, when you're going nine to 10 guys deep into the bench where it could be much more useful to kind of, you know, like trim the fat, you know, and when I say trim the fat, like maybe less minutes for a guy like Pat Connaughton, you know what I mean? Who was not good in this series whatsoever uh, to increase the minutes of Giannis and stick to an eight man rotation. You know, Middleton did play 47 minutes in an overtime win, um, in game four, but, uh, after going down, you know, 3-0, I mean, that's, that seems to just be a moot point, uh, at this point, but, uh, tough loss here for the Bucks. I mean, they're going to have to do something, uh, they're going to have to do something this offseason. Clearly what they're doing has not worked two years in a row and credit to Miami who has been just fantastic. They're getting great minutes from Goran Dragic, who has who was fantastic in this series, he's looking like FIBA Dragic again. Jimmy Butler is always a big time player. We know what he can do on the offensive end, despite some of his struggles shooting from mid range and from three. He really shows up when the game is on the line and when it counts. Uh, we saw that in Game One and in some of the other games in the series as well. Duncan Robinson obviously is shooting the ball uh, at a high level. So is Tyler Hero. Jay Crowder even is shooting it at a high level. They're getting some nice minutes, obviously, from Bam, who uh, is, who is seeing time at center and playing well there. Kelly Olynyk is providing nice minutes at backup center. So the Miami Heat are really rolling here, uh, and they're going to meet uh, the winner of Toronto and Boston in the conference finals. We'll get to that series in a second, but. You know, tough, tough for the Bucks. Good for Miami, and we've got our you know first real upset here of the bubble with the number one seed Bucks going home and the number five seed Miami Heat headed to the Eastern Conference Finals. Okay, 
Let's get into this next series here. Uh, we're gonna go. We're gonna flip back to the West and go with this Clippers versus Nuggets series. My prediction was that the Clippers would win in six games, and the series sits right now at three-one Clippers after their win last night. Uh, just for reference, recording this September tenth at around five twenty-six p.m. As I say this. Um, so in game one, you know, the Nuggets looked real gassed, uh, and that's to be expected. They played basically three game sevens after going 3-1 to the Jazz back to back to back. Uh, so they expected to be in tough in this series already being an underdog, but then having the, the fatigue on top of that does not help whatsoever. Um, so the Clippers uh, were kind of smart to blitz them early, you know, kind of get out to a large lead and, you know, Denver uh, inevitably waving the white flag to start the fourth in game one. And really couldn't come back from that at all. Uh, the Clippers' defense was obviously great in Game 1. They mixed up different looks on Murray, uh, containing uh, that Jokic and Murray pick-and-roll was also a, uh, a big thing for them, and they were able to do that successfully. Uh, throughout the series, Kawhi Leonard looks to be better as a passer. You know, something we've seen improvement through throughout the regular season, glimpses of. But he seems to be much more adept now at making the passes out of inevitable double teams that are coming his way and making that pocket pass in the pick-and-roll most of the time finding Zubach, uh, he's been very good at. So credit to Kawhi Leonard becoming uh, a now a playmaker. Rounding out his game has really helped and it's going to help uh, as the Clippers most likely move on in the next series. I know the Nuggets just came back from a 3-1 deficit, but to do so uh, against the Clippers is it to do it against a team like the Utah Jazz. So uh, if there is hope for the Nuggets in this series, uh, it's going to be the Clippers' you know, second unit, which has been flammable at times uh, defensively with Lou Williams, uh, Reggie Jackson, Montrez Harrell, or any combination of the three. But even now uh, in Game 4, the, the Clippers uh, made some de like defensive switches, like so doc changes, and credit uh, Jovan Buha at The Athletic for pointing this out. Uh, basically, he said he replaced Leonard and George, or Leonard with George, so one of those two always on the court at the same time, and basically inserted Pat Beverly for Reggie Jackson, who was benched altogether uh, in Game 4. So instead of the J Reggie Jackson minutes, he basically gave those to Pat Beverly, uh, which is obviously a much better uh, use of those minutes uh, in terms of defensively. So uh, there's no flammable uh, defensive personnel on the floor now uh, for the Clippers off the bench, which is basically what uh, Doc Rivers was looking for uh, in terms of making this change. That's obviously what the goal is. And... Um, you know, Paul George has looked a lot better in this series than he did against the Mavericks. He's He's got some games now where he's looking like he's back to the old Paul George. You know, still having some struggles here and there, but has had a couple 30-point games uh, on some good shooting. Uh, looking like he can uh, get back to his old defensive ways, defensive ways, which is also a plus. And you know, in terms of uh, in terms of the Nuggets, it's just they're they're in tough in this series. I'm not gonna lie, they're in tough. Um, the the Clippers uh, defense, they're they're very good. They're very good at doubling Jokic, mixing up looks against him. Uh, Murray's seeing basically Paul George or Kawhi Leonard or Pat Beverly at all times during the game, which. Uh, as you can expect, makes him a lot less effective. And then outside of that, you're just not getting much from your role players. And, you know, Michael Porter was pretty vocal about not getting more touches, uh, saying that they uh, needed to, you know, get other guys involved. And, you know, he didn't touch the ball in the fourth quarter uh, at all of this uh, at, at all of this previous uh, game four. So I can see why he was frustrated. Uh, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, like for your input as a rookie, you're just a rookie and you know, you're, you're dealing with a coach like Mike Malone who understands offense very well. Um, that's kind of, you're kind of in tough there. And I don't necessarily think that that was necessary. That's probably something you should just keep internal. So 
I know Clippers Nuggets uh, looks like Clippers are going to win this series. Again, they are up 3-1, and uh, I foresee them uh, going to, uh, to the conference finals to face the winner of the Rockets and Lakers, uh, who we'll move on to right now. I picked the Rockets uh, – or sorry, I picked the Lakers to win in six games. The result right now is 2-1 Lakers. Um, so one of the storylines so far to start this series is uh, the Lakers' defense on James Harden. Uh, credit Zach Lowe uh, from ESPN. He did a fantastic article on the different looks that the Rockets were throwing, or sorry, the Lakers were throwing against Harden defensively. So they're basically using this strategy of double teaming him at the top and zoning up to play uh, three guys guarding four shooters. Uh, you know, in when they make the pass in the middle of the floor or kick it out to the wing. And we've seen this before against Houston. This defense played against Houston before, right? Uh, Toronto had did this in the past. Uh, we've seen uh, the Denver Nuggets play this type of defense in the past. Uh, but they've also added a wrinkle now, have the Lakers to this defense, and that's basically by double-teaming Harden later in the shot clock and forcing him to make a decision with the shot clock acting kind of as the sixth defender. Uh, so basically now when he tosses that ball to the middle or out to the wing to one of those shooters, now the, uh, and that closeout comes or uh, you know somebody meets him in the middle of the floor, somebody meets that roll man in the middle of the floor after they double team Harden. Now they basically, they have to make a quicker decision with, you know, five, four, three seconds on the clock. And now you're, you're pressed into, you know, turning the ball over or pu putting up a bad shot just because you're playing against the, the shot clock. Now, in addition to the other five defenders on the floor. So, you know, the Lakers defense has been a strength of their team all year. Uh, so after the pass is made out to the double team, Lakers are basically moving on a string, which they've been really good at. You really see that in some of the clips uh, that they really move in unison, which is exactly how you should play on defense. Um, you know, Kuzma has been very improved defensively as the series has gone on. Um, Contavious Caldwell-Pope and Danny Green and Alex Caruso have always been plus defenders. You know, Markeith Morris, who is seeing more minutes in this series and has provided some offensive punch offensive punch he has been passable at least defensively and then lebron is giving fantastic effort and ad we know uh what his defensive prowess is like as well so between that group of guys there uh that is that you're that's what you're looking at defensively, and it's been and it's been very good uh, for the Lakers. They've uh, executed it uh, extremely well, and even in games where the Rockets have shot 40% from three, they've actually lost both of those games, which is uh, a big stat because I'm pretty sure they were like 17 and 0 uh, before that uh, when they shot 40% or better from three. So credit to the Lakers; they're really playing well defensively. Um, they, they understand where to rotate. They move in unison, um, and basically when Harden uh, gives the ball up. He's very reluctant to get the ball back is what I've noticed uh, and Zach Lowe pointed out as well uh, in his piece there over at ESPN is that once he gives it up, he doesn't really look to get it back, you know, within the possession and that, you know, basically takes the ball out of Harden's hands and puts it into the hands of sub-Harden uh, sub decision makers, which is what you want to see, guys that aren't James Harden making decisions with the basketball. That's what you want to see if you are the Lakers defense. Um, so basically some stats here, they doubled Harden 55 times combined over games two and three and only gave up about one point per possession after those traps, uh, which is well be below Houston's, you know, overall average. And then Houston is actually a minus 19 in 18 minutes with Harden sitting and Westbrook playing over the past two games. Uh, after winning those minutes in game one. So that kind of brings me to the next portion here is, you know, Russell Westbrook, like, He's, you know, he he's he's boom or bust. He's a boom or bust guy. Either you're getting a great Westbrook game or a terrible Westbrook game, you know, at this point. And 
uh, I, I think it was uh, somebody on Twitter that I saw mention this, and I thought that it was such a good point, is that when you have Russell Westbrook on your team and he's he's playing in the system that the Rockets offer, and when he can't actually shoot three-pointers and like he's a liability shooting three-pointers, the level of what he has to do on offense to actually make up for the fact that he can't shoot is at like an added level of expectation like you add a layer of expectation now because if you're not going to be able to shoot well then you have to actually be good at these other things or else you really can't be on the floor or can't be on the floor playing effectively in the case of russell westbrook in some of these games so what i mean by that is you have to actually be able to finish at the rim consistently if you're going to shoot these mid-rangers they better be good shots they can't be with you know 18 on the clock early in the possession where where nobody has touched it uh so these are the types of things that you know and you have you can't be turning the ball over seven times in a game burping up eight threes like these are the types of things that you can you have to eliminate if you're Russell Westbrook and want to be effective in this series and in general uh, in this series I would say Russell Westbrook has not been effective uh, over these last three games uh, with the Rockets obviously playing tonight in about uh, an hour and a half as I record this at 535 so Westbrook needs to be better if they're going to want to win this series um, for the Lakers, you know, yeah, this is another series where there are very limited options to guard Anthony Davis and LeBron James if you're the Houston Rockets. I mean, Eric Gordon guarding LeBron, P.J. Tucker guarding Anthony Davis uh, have been the best uh, option, you know, in those specific roles, but they just simply haven't been good enough. I know P.J. Tucker did a really good job in Game 1, but Anthony Davis has kind of seemed to figure uh, figure out this team, figure out who he, who he can post up, who he ducks in against, who he needs to shoot the mid-ranger against. He seems to have found where to get his offense against which players, which is not a surprise for a, a, a player, the quality of Anthony Davis. And, you know, Rondo actually came back to the lineup and gave them a nice, bu- a nice boost in Game 3. He knocked down three triples in the second half, got like five steals. He was defending at a, a high level we haven't seen in years. And Markeith Morris actually gave them a punch in Game 2 where he had uh, four three-pointers in that first quarter that gave them the, uh, the spark that they needed to start the game. So... You know, the, the Lakers don't necessarily have a traditional third option score like you would on these uh, contender, you know, superstar teams. You know, on any night, it could be somebody different. It was Markeith Morris, uh, you know, in game two. It was Rondo in game three. It could be Kuzma another night. You know, Danny Green could hit seven threes on another night. You know, maybe Alex Caruso uh, goes off on one night. Like, you just never know who you're going to get the punch, the offensive punch from. And the last thing here on the Lakers is, uh, you know, Dwight Howard, uh, at least for now, is out of the rotation. Uh, and JaVale McGee's minutes are basically fading quickly. Uh, he played eight, uh, McGee played eight minutes in game two and seven in game three. Uh, and all of those minutes in game three were in the first half. And Vogel really hasn't, not I'm not going to say really, he hasn't at all played either of his centers one, se- one second half minute in either of the Lakers' wins in games two and three, uh, basically replacing those minutes with Markeith Morris at center instead of McGee and Dwight Howard. So the Lakers clearly are choosing to go small here against the Rockets, and it is working. Uh, their ability to play small uh, and play a lot of what the Rockets' uh, what the Rockets' game is is very uh, is very effective, and that also helps with their defensive system with the doubling of Harden and being able to rotate back to their guys, as you know some of those centers might be slow afoot to uh, chase. Uh, and cover ground out there on the three-point line. So 
I think the Lakers are going to win this series. Uh, obviously, I picked them in six. I'm going to stick with that prediction. Um, this might be even uh, a series that ends in five if we don't uh, see some major changes here uh, from the Rockets offensively. I'm just not sure where, uh, outside of a massive, you know, three-point barrage where they hit, you know, 24 threes or something along those lines, and they can do that. They definitely can do that. But outside of that, I don't necessarily see a path to the Rockets winning this series. And I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But as of right now, I am taking the Lakers to meet the Clippers in the conference finals. Okay. This is definitely easily the series of the second round. Everybody was waiting for this one. This has just been a fantastic back and forth battle between two uh, contenders in the Eastern Conference. And that is the Raptors versus the Celtics. My prediction was the Raptors in seven. And the result of the series right now is 3-3. After what was just an incredible, incredible game six. One of the best basketball games I've ever watched. And I can confidently say that. That was insane. Um, so the Celtics obviously won the first two games of the series. Uh, Raptors three-point shooting uh, was not there. Shots were not falling for them. Uh, and the, the Celtics uh, offense was clicking you know, quite easily. And basically, the Celtics were better in the first two games, and the Raptors were better uh, in the next two games. You know, uh, that's how the series got to 2-2. And then game five, the uh, the Celtics absolutely blew out the Raptors. They had no chance. I, I had no idea what was going on with Toronto in that game. Uh, but they got blown out. And then game six was the wild one. So let, let's let's kind of get to this, uh, this series a little bit. So uh, the Raptors three ball from games one to four has basically um, basically gotten better as the series has gone on with most of their looks being ones that have fallen for most of the season. So, you know, game one, they went 10 of 40, did the Raptors from three. Game two, 11 of 40 from three for the Raptors. Game three, which they won, 13 of 40 uh, in a win. That's much better. Game four, 17 of 44 in a win. Game five, 12 of 40 in the loss. And then game six, 19 of 47 in the win. So, you know, uh, the, the Raptors' shot quality, to me, have, hasn't necessarily been the problem at times. There's been times where they struggle to score and create, uh, uh, you know, reliable offense in a half court. But generally, when they're getting their three-pointers, they are pretty good looks. Um... On the other end, you know, Boston's transition defense has gotten much better as the series went on. Clearly, it is of emphasis to them to shut down whatever uh, Toronto can get in transition as much as possible. Uh, you know, Toronto was one of the best, uh, better transition teams in the league. Uh, this year and that's basically a lot of what keeps their offense afloat they have you know especially when a guy like Pascal Siakam who hasn't had a great series thus far against Boston is struggling and you don't have many other creators in the half court that are actually going to allow you to create reliable half court offense so what do you do you push uh, and you run the ball down their throat off of live ball turnovers off of misses even off of makes sometimes and the Celtics have done a real good job of shutting that off uh, understanding that the transition game for the Toronto Raptors is keeping their offense afloat. So when Boston takes that away, and you've got Gasol, who, who doesn't even look at the rim at times, and Siakam having his fair share of struggles during the first six games, the Raptors' half-court offense looks pedestrian at times, and it's, it's, it's a bit of a problem. Um, both of these teams defensively have gone to this like pinching strategy, and that's credit to... Um, Credit to Blake Murphy and Jared Weiss at The Athletic for noticing this and pointing it out. Um, basically, uh, this pinching strategy essentially where the weak and strong side defenders uh, that basically are uh, are directly or indirectly involved in the pick and roll are basically sagging off their man at the three-point line and enough to kind of like, like clog the paint a little bit so that 
It's enough that the spacing uh, for the roll man and for the ball handler is clogged, but also not enough to where if the, the ball handler does kick out to the shooters, they can't effectively close out uh, if they need to. And, you know, some of the counters to that was uh, Fred Van Vliet relocating out for three. Uh, they were getting some back cuts, you know, to the rim when guys uh, were turning their heads, which is good. You need more of that. Um, some more in Boston uh, minutes or uh, some more Boston statistics here. In 186 minutes with Kemba on the floor in the series, the Celtics have scored 112.5 points per 100 possessions. Uh, and in 54 minutes with him off the floor, they've scored just 80.2. So obviously, Kemba Walker, a massive, massive part of this Boston offense. He, I think, has been the best player in the series for the Celtics with maybe. Uh, uh, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown fighting for a close second. You know, even maybe Marcus Smart might even be in that conversation as well. Um, uh, somewhat of the somewhat of the latter inc includes garbage time, but even with 45 minutes with Tatum on the floor without Walker, the Celtics have scored just 80 points on 99 possessions. So Kemba Walker is driving very efficient offense when he's on the floor, and the Celtics are uh, almost unable to survive with him offensively off the floor, which is uh, a massive development here. Um, you know, we talk, let's talk about the, the Raptors in game three. Uh, that was the massive, you know, OG shot where, uh, Kemba Walker, uh, he's in the paint. He's navigating the pick and roll dumps, makes a beautiful look off dump down pass to Daniel Tice to go up two points with 0.5 on the clock. And the Raptors call timeout. Uh, Lowry uh, inbounds the ball uh, from the from basically half court over the hands of the outstretched Taco Fall and right into the shooting pocket of OG Ananobi, who knocks down the massive three pointer to win the game in Game Three and uh, stave off a, a 3-0 deficit for the Raptors. That was massive. And in that game, in that game three, obviously the OG Ananobi shot is the one you're going to remember. But to me, what changed that game was Brad Stevens' decision to go to in Ennis Cantor uh, in the third quarter for a stretch of about you know four or five minutes, whatever it was. And basically, what the Raptors did is they said we're putting Ennis Cantor in every single pick and roll down the floor. And I think he they went through. Uh, they they put him in a lot of pick and rolls, like a lot of pick and rolls every time he was down the floor. And I, I counted at least eight points that, that the Toronto Raptors generated just based off having uh, Cantor on the floor in that stretch of, it wasn't even five minutes, it was like three minutes, I swear, uh, where Cantor was just getting eaten alive in the screen and roll game. And that to me was the difference because in that game three, the Raptors didn't have any offense going for them. There was nothing that showed me that the Raptors offense was actually, you know, clicking or having anything going. And it basically gave them life, uh, putting cancer in those pick and rolls when they didn't have any. So that was a massive development, you know, in game three, uh, in game five, obviously the Celtics blew out the Raptors. They were playing fantastic. The Raptors uh, just couldn't get anything going offensively and really couldn't st even stop the Celtics defensively at times. Let's talk about game six. This game six was crazy, crazy stuff. Easily the best game of the bubble. One of the best games I've ever seen uh, on TV, obviously. Um, and it was just a back and forth battle that I could probably do like 45 minutes on just on itself. But let's just go over the highlights. So the Raptors uh, in the first quarter, or sorry, in the first half, went to an exclusive box and one on Kemba Walker in the first half. And that actually left him scoreless. He did not score a single point. I think he went 0 of 2 or 0 of 3 from the field. 
uh, and the Raptors went into an exclusive box and one, and I think it was 50 to 45 at the half. You know, for the Celtics, and Jalen Brown was their primary offensive engine, uh, and was fantastic. He was he was hitting mid range mid range pull ups. You know, drives to the rim, uh, finishing a nice extension finish with the left. I can remember he was knocking down corner threes at a high rate. Jalen Brown was awesome in Game Six. Uh, Jason Tatum finished with like 29, like 12 and nine or something like that, like some crazy stat line. But he just didn't seem to be as effective. It just didn't feel his impact as much. Uh, Jalen Brown, obviously, with the 31 points, was the high scorer for the Celtics in that Game Six. And then in the second half, you know, the uh, after after Marcus Saul had just been looking absolutely terrible. I should start with that. Just absolutely terrible. Um, and basically, you know, Ibaka knocked down some crucial threes actually in that first half. Uh, to I think he knocked down three of them, and that gave the Raptors, you know, some life, some life that they didn't have that they finally got. Uh, in that first half after their offense was looking pretty sluggish. And then Gasol comes out in the third quarter. And he knocks down a couple threes. He knocks. He he, he was uh, making some great plays at the rim. Got a deflection on a pass. Uh, you know, changed a shot at the rim. And just, was just looking much more like the Marcus Gasol that we're used to seeing uh, prior to these playoffs where he has been largely disappointing. And uh, that was enough to at least survive the minutes at center uh, before you got more of a Baca that came in. And then after that, with about, you know, 10 or so minutes left in the fourth quarter, you know, the Raptors went exclusively to this small lineup that uh, Nick Nurse admitted after the game that he was looking to play for a long time. And that was, um, we've got Lowry, Van Vliet, Norman Powell, Pascal Siakam, and OG, whoever you want to call the center there between Siakam and OG uh, and Anobi. Or playing the five, which allowed them basically more fill, for versatility on offense and defense, uh, more versatility to switch ball screens uh, and aggressive and aggressive closeouts to shooters. Uh, once Boston got their drive and kick game going, uh, they did become more 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 vulnerable to second chance points and to the uh, the Daniel Tice lob to the rim. But ultimately, they they were able to get the job done. Um, but we can't talk about this game, obviously, obviously, without talking about Kyle Lowry, easily the MVP of this game. He is abs- He's doing absolutely everything needed for this team to win. He's leading the team in scoring. He's picking up Jason Tatum on the other end and doing a good job of guarding him as well. I mean, Kyle Lowry has just been fantastic in this series, but for maybe Game 5 where he was, uh, you know, quite pedestrian. But other than that, Kyle Lowry has been the MVP, you know, of this team, best player in the series for the Toronto Raptors. And this is a crazy stat. Through six games, Kyle Lowry has played 250 minutes. 250 250 minutes for Kyle Lowry. Uh, that's Four hours of on-court basketball time in six games. Like, that is craziness. Crazy craziness for Kyle Lowry to be playing that many minutes with that high-intensity basketball. A guy, you know, putting his body on the line with charges. Having to move his feet against Jason Tatum and score. Lead the team in scoring on the other end. That is that is heart at the highest level. Uh, and he's doing a great job on Jason Tatum at that. Uh, you know, playing unbelievable in the majority of those 250 minutes. Um, the other, the other guy that, and obviously hits that dagger against uh, Kemba Walker uh, when the Raptors were up two with 11 seconds left, takes him down onto the block after a curious low resistance switch from Marcus Smart and uh, Kemba Walker. Obviously, uh, there was there was no resistance for Marcus Smart to just switch off onto Van Vliet after Kyle Lowry was looking to get Kemba Walker on him. I was surprised Smart didn't put more up more of a resistance to stay on Lowry knowing that he was going to get the ball at the end of the game. 
here in double overtime, and he basically uh, backs down uh, uh, Kemba Walker onto the right block and basically turns back over uh, his left shoulder and squares in the air and knocks it down over Walker in the mid-range to go up four with 11 seconds left and essentially seal the game there for the Toronto Raptors. That was a fantastic shot from Kyle Lowry. And the other guy that deserves some credit in this game as well is Norman Powell. Norman Powell was huge in game six, especially in the double overtime. He had that he had 10 points in double overtime, but specifically one sequence where he, um, he, he, they're, they're, Sorry, the Celtics were on their drive and kick game. They're, you know, they're trying to, you know, get back, get to the rim. And with about a minute or so left, about a minute 30 left, Norm Powell basically uh, rips Jason Tatum with a beautiful reach where he got all ball, gets out in transition, and finishes with his right hand into the body of Marcus Smart and at the rim to get an and one. Uh, basically, a, a a massive swing there, and he hit an uh, he hit a huge three as well. Uh, a couple of them actually, a couple massive threes. Uh, in in the double overtime, uh, all both of them needed one from the corner, one above the break, and then hits a, a couple of free throws to help ice the game as well. So Norm Powell was huge, huge, huge in this game, and obviously part of that uh, small lineup with Kyle Lowry, Fred VanVleet, OG, and an OB and Pascal Siakam. Um, so that was that was huge for Norm Powell. So you know this series in general has been fantastic. This has been uh, my favorite series. Of the playoffs so far, we expected this to be a dogfight. It has been a dogfight. Two great coaches uh, from Nick Nurse to uh, to Brad Stevens. Both of these co- coaches have coached a fantastic series, uh, and they've done a great job making the tactical adjustments with their respective teams. And now it comes down to a game seven where the quote unquote road team has won every game in this series. And the road team uh, in game seven will actually be the Boston Celtics. Uh, Regardless, I'm still picking the Toronto Raptors. I trust their players more. They have more game seven experience. They are more uh, battle tested, in my opinion, than the Boston Celtics. And uh, I basically, I think obviously the Celtics have a little more firepower, but I just trust that this Raptors defense, especially now figuring out that small lineup uh, that I talked about with the three guards, uh, OG and Pascal, I trust that that lineup is actually going to play, uh, you know, the, the, the requisite minutes again to get them over the hump offensively and keep them afloat defensively as well. So I'm going to go and predict that the Raptors are going to win in seven games and move on to face the Miami Heat in the Eastern Conference Finals. All right. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the ISO Ball Podcast. You can follow ISO Ball Podcast or Derek Terrio. You can search either one on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, feel free to share, like, uh, tell your friends about it, and uh, let me know if you want to hear any specific topics. Uh, Coming up soon, we're going to have a few different guests uh, from the United States, uh, which is actually going to be a lot of fun to have some guests on the podcast, so you can expect that quite soon. Uh, But until then, I appreciate you listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Have a good one.